bump. And I'll, I'll say I'm really excited for that, uh, the six weeks that are coming up. I think we have some pretty exciting things in store. So do uh, make time in your schedule for that. Um, if you'd like a Bible, there's some fine people in the aisle that are passing them out. So just raise your hand. I would I encourage you to have pages, page numbers on the screen so that with those blue Bibles, so I can help you out. Uh, but I would encourage you to grab one of those. Um, we've had a fantastic few weeks, uh, like Paul's mentioned, where we've talked about the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, this entire time, we as, we as a community have together been seeking God uh, in this thing called 40 Days Looking to Jesus. And we've been looking at taking Hebrews 12 very seriously where it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let's also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let's run with endurance the race that's set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So we, as a church, have been taking this seriously and have been throwing aside the weights and the sins that cling to us so closely so that, we, so that we can see Jesus clear, so that we can look at him as our goal and our model. Because we believe that Jesus is our ultimate model. We believe he's God, so therefore he's worth looking at. And we've gotten so serious about this that we, we set up a blog, and maybe some of you have read it, called Four Days Looking to Jesus. And uh, many of us have been posting about our experience of what of what this laying aside every weight and sin um, has, has been doing to us. It's always been so good to take a span of days prior to, to Easter and, like, and get rid of things that grab your attention and block your view of Jesus. So, as we continue to move forward towards Easter, which we're 20 days away from Resurrection Sunday, continue, Chapel Hill, continue to throw off every weight and sin that clouds your view of Christ. That's why we wear these ropes. These ropes represent the things that entangle us, the things that slow us down, the things that keep us from running uh, the race that Jesus would have us run. If you haven't been engaging in the 40 days looking at Jesus, well, you can can join the 20 days looking at Jesus. Start today. Start today. Um, In fact, in the next few minutes, you might find, as you're listening to me talk, that there's something holding you back. God might reveal something to you that's entangling you something that's causing you to worry and stress. Uh, and you might hear the Spirit of God say, lay it down. Put it aside. It's blocking your view of me. Release it. Look to me. And I just ask you, if you hear, if you hear his voice this morning, if you get a sense of some things you need to lay down, don't walk out of here without making that commitment to do so. Even for 20 days prior to Resurrection Sunday. So with that, let's continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. So open your Bibles to Exodus 16. Exodus 16. Some of you might get it later, or just ask, ask an usher. Alright, so turn to Exodus 16, that's right. So, in this passage, let me just kind of set you up where, where things are going. In this passage, Moses had just left the people, led the people out of Egypt. They were in slavery, and God uses Moses to, to, to you know, create these crazy plagues and frogs and turning water into blood and boils and locusts to get Pharaoh to let God's people go free, because you've seen the cartoon, right? Or the Charlton Heston version. And then God leads them out of Egypt by this amazing pillar of fire at night. It's God's GPS app, the pillar of fire. Look it up. 
and he splits up the Red Sea, splits it apart, and leaves them across on dry land. I mean, think about that. If you were to experience ten plagues, a pillar of cloud, a pillar of fire, and the split of the Red Sea, wouldn't that just blow you away? Wouldn't that leave you going, God is awesome, I have nothing to worry about anymore at all. You think that if you experience that, you'd probably think, I have no more fear, no more worry. I've seen enough. I know God is in control. But look what happens. Exodus chapter 16, verse 3. It says this. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you have brought us into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. They're saying, look, at least Egypt had a Chipotle. You have us out in the desert. Read, you know what? I'd rather go back to Egypt to be in slavery than to be hungry in the desert. I'm amazed by this statement. Because God just left, left them out of Egypt in a very spectacular Way. Ten plagues, pillar fires, split the sea. And now they're doubting. They're worried they're going to die. They're worried where they're going to get their next meal. That God's not going to pull through for them. They want to go back to Egypt. It's so bad. Apparently, God has led them out there to die, they think. But God speaks up. In verse 4, he says this The Lord says to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. God decides to care for his people. He's going to provide food for them. And then Moses speaks up in verse 8 and says this, and Moses says, when the Lord gives you, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and the morning bread to the full, because the, the Lord has heard the grumbling you had grumbled against him. I love to use the word grumble. What are we? Your grumbling's not against us. Now don't look at your leadership. It's against God. He's the one that brought us out here. We didn't lead you here. The Lord did, he says. Don't you remember the locusts? That's him. The water turned to blood. That was him. Water split into two. That was him. Don't blame us. It's God. And then, verse 13. In the evening, quail came up. Birds came up to eat and covered the camp. In the, in the morning, dew lay around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine, flake like thing, fine as frost on the ground. And when the people of Israel saw it, they said to each other, What is it? Well, they didn't know what it was. And Moses said to them, It's the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each of you, as much as he can eat. You shall each take an omer. Wait, what's an omer? Two quarts? How'd you know that? That's right, Jared. An omer is a tenth a tenth of an ephah. And an ephah is 72 logs. And a log is equal to a Sumerian mina, which is one sixteenth of a maris. Thus, the omer is thus equal to about 12 one-hundredths of a maris. And the maris is defined as being the quantity of water equal to the weight of a light royal talent, and thus equal to about 330 liters, making 
And since we don't have to use the metric system in the U.S., like we do in Canada, we would say an omer is one gallon or two quarts. Is that what yours says? That's what my Bible says. Or Wikipedia. Each of you shall take a gallon according to the number of persons that you have in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured it with an omer, listen to this, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. And whoever gathered little had no lack. Whoever had gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. And each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, let let no one leave any of it over till the morning. Don't store it in your fridge. But they didn't listen to Moses, and some left it out till morning, and it bred worms and stank. It said stank. And Moses was angry with them, and morning by morning they gathered each as much as they could eat, and the sun grew hot and melted. So there's so much going on right here. A couple things. First, notice God provides. In the desert, the people who have no food, in the desert, God provides. God feeds his people. He has means to do so. Secondly, there's something very mysterious going on. Some weird form of the diminishing law of returns. Whoever gathered had much left, had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as they could eat. And also Moses instructs his people, don't leave any of it over until morning. Look, here's what God's doing. He's providing, he's feeding his people, and the people that took little had no lack. Here's what he wants. He doesn't want them to gather more than they need. He doesn't want them to store overnight. Why? Because God wants them to trust him. God wants them to know he's going to give them what they need for the day. It's their daily bread, as one rabbi would call it. He didn't provide more than they needed. He provided what they needed that day. Turn your Bibles to right to 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to continue our study on the Sermon on the Mount. 2 Kings chapter 4. Throughout the scriptures, there's this message that God will provide. God is capable of providing. There's also this theme going on that God's people just don't get it. For example, case in point, 2 Kings, on the first one, 2 Kings Forty-two, and a man came from Baal Shalisha. Everyone say Baal Shalisha. Well done. Bringing the men, the man of God, breads of the first fruits, twelve loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said to them, the prophet, Give to the man, give to the men, they may eat. But his servant said, How can I sit this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give them to the men. They may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. And he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. God provides. Not only does God bring food, but he also multiplies it. In fact, if you go home today and read the first part of 2 Kings chapter 4, you'll find there's this amazing story about a widow, where her food gets expanded and multiplied. And in this, in this story, there's a person who doesn't believe, someone who doubts. He's like, how can I put this before a hundred men? He's like, do I stutter? Give it to him. And he does it. He does it. 
is expansive. And there's this sense that God is telling his people over and over and over and over again, I've got this. I turn the right to Matthew chapter 14, as we continue our study of the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 14. We're into the, uh, the New Testament now. This, is just, this isn't just an Old Testament thing. Matthew chapter 14, verse 15. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place. The day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. And Jesus said, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. Have you not read 2 Kings chapter 4? They said to him, we have only five loaves here and two fish. And he said, have you not read 2 Kings chapter 4, or Egypt, or, 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 or Exodus 16? And he said, bring them here to me. And he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and two fish. He looked to heaven, said a blessing, he broke the loaves, he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowd. And they all ate and were satisfied, and they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces left over. And those who ate were five counting five thousand men besides women and children. So I know you know this story. If you've been in church for just a, you know, a few years, you've probably heard this story many times or referenced many times. But did you know this story occurs over and over and over in the Bible? Egypt, Elisha, the, the, this widow in, in 2 Kings chapter 4, Jesus does it. God provides food for his own in miraculous and mysterious ways. This is a recurring Story. In fact, look, the next chapter, Matthew 15, next chapter, verse 32, Jesus calls the disciples, said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have nothing to, they've been with you three days, they have nothing to eat. I'm unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint in the way. The disciples said again, well, where should we get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed such a crowd? He's like, have you not read Matthew 14? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven and a few small fish. Directed the crowd to sit in the ground. He took them to the seven loaves and fish, and giving them thanks, he broke them, gave them to the disciples, and all the disciples gave them to the crowds, and they all ate and were satisfied. He took up seven baskets full of broken pieces left over, and those who ate were 4,000 men, besides women and children. Can you believe that? The disciples. How are we going to do this? The, the servants. How am I going to feed 100 men? The, the, the Egyptians. The Israelites coming out of Egypt, not the Egyptians, the Israelites saying, We're going to die. Send us back. God's not going to take care of us. Will they not learn? Can they not trust Him? They've seen Jesus standing right in front of these disciples. God is in control. He's fully capable of providing. He will provide for His children, He says. So that leads us to Matthew 5. So turn to the, or 6. Turn to the, to the left. Matthew 6. It says in verse 25, this is our passage today, verse 25, Therefore, I tell you, stop. Therefore, good Bible readers, when you see a therefore, you got to find out what it's there for. Jesus just finished, just finished talking about where your treasure is, that your heart will be also. He was urging his disciples to lay up their treasures in heaven, and they can't serve God in money, as Paul referenced. And then he says this, So therefore, I tell you, about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is life more than, is not life more than food, 
and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. They don't work, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Get this thing, this is a refrain. Are you not of more valuable of value than they are? By the way, by the way, seven billion people on the planet. Scientists say there's enough food for everybody. There's enough food. The problem is not God. The problem's us. Our governments, our greed, our systems prevent people from getting what they need. But God provides enough food. He's, he's created a planet that has enough. There's enough. Chapter verse 27. And by and which of you, which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour? to his span of life. Other translations say it had a single like inch to your height. But at a single hour to his span of life. This this verse has for years has been a reminder to me that we anxiety doesn't really get us any farther. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. They don't work. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like these flowers. But if God clothes the grass of the field which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? If you hear God, like he sees throughout history, throughout biblical history, that he's trying to show people, I am going to be your provider. You can trust in me. And here he is again saying this. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things. And your heavenly Father knows, He, he, know, I, I, he knows He needs them all. Men, but seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. Can you hear God trying to get His people to listen? Don't worry about this stuff. I've got it. Don't be anxious about your life. I've got it. I'm in control. I've got this. Trust me. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. I feed birds. I make beautiful flowers. And you are worth so much more to me than that. Don't worry. God provides. And this message is so relevant today because we live highly anxious lives, don't we? We are worried about the future. We're worried we're not going to get what we need. We're worried it might fall apart if we don't just keep pushing and pushing. It's common today to hear people say, I'm hustling, I'm hustling today. I hear that word a lot. That we're going to, that people work 60, 70 hours per week if we're going to try to make it. And we're praised, man, that guy works 60, 70 hours, 80 hours a week. When we don't take a vacation, we're praised. Man, that guy doesn't take a vacation, he just works. When we work weekends, we're, we're praised for this. And so much of this work is driven by our anxiety and our worry. God loves hard workers. God loves those who create. And God loves who does things with high excellence. But the question here is, what is behind all of it for you? Is it anxiety? Is it worry? Are you driven by worry and anxiety? And Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Just take a moment. Consider the things that you worry about. What are the things that have been on your mind constantly this week? What are the things you're anxious over? 
one of those things. Maybe you have a, a mental list in your mind. Because here's the thing. Worry and anxiety reveal the treasures in your heart. Your worry and anxiety reveal to you what you worship. And if moth and rust can destroy those things, you're going to be really anxious. If your treasure has an expiration date, it's not eternal, you're going to really worry. But there's another way. There's an alternative to worry and anxiety about these things. Jesus makes a statement, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. He's saying this, look up, look to me. I've got some power, I've got means, I don't have an expiration date, I can resist moth and rust. And by the way, there are greater things to be concerned about. Building a kingdom, doing great things in the world, and putting this thing all back together. If you seek the world, and you seek the things in this world, you get the world. You'll work yourself to the bone, and you get things that moth and rust destroy. But if you seek my kingdom, and my way of living, you'll get me, and you'll get the world saying, don't worry, God provides for something greater with your eyes. Don't worry, God provides, there's something greater, lift your eyes. Jesus is saying, I know you're worried about the future. You want the future? Listen, I am the future. My kingdom is the future. Seek first my kingdom. Make my kingdom your top priority. When you do this, you're partnering with me. You're partnering with the most powerful force in the universe. You're partnering with a force that has a market cap 100,000 times the size of Apple's market cap. It's a wise strategy to link up with the greatest resource in the universe when it's inviting you to do so. It's a wise strategy to partner with the one who started all this and will finish it. This is what we as Christians believe when we say, I'm going to seek first his kingdom. Don't worry. God provides. Something greater. Lift your eyes. So now this, this teaching typically, when you teach this passage, it usually raises lots and lots of questions in our minds. Doesn't it? I wouldn't be surprised if many of you are sitting there with some questions. There's a, maybe some exceptions in your mind. Because there's so many things in our life to worry about, aren't there? And it's often difficult to see how God is providing, especially when we're in the fire of there's also situations where it doesn't appear that God is providing. And we can often feel like the people in Exodus 16 saying, where are you, God? We're hungry and in need. And that can raise questions about, you know, how could Jesus say, don't be anxious about your life? Instead of addressing these questions and these exceptions with more bullet points and more propositional statements, I want you to hear how one family in our congregation is looking to Jesus during a very, very difficult trial, and maybe you'll hear Jesus speak to the questions that you have about Jason Morrison and his church. Thank you, Pastor Peter. 
morning, ladies and gentlemen. Give me the gifts. <laughs> yeah. I'm Jay Morrison. I'm married to Tracy Morrison, sister of Faith. Um, I'm going to read this because I don't know if I can get through it if I don't read it. Um, we have six children. The oldest is 15, the youngest have twins, age three and a half. Tell you a little story about a recent anxiety that our family has gone through. First, I should share a little history and background to set the stage. Fifteen years ago, Tracy was diagnosed with malignant melanoma when she was pregnant with our second child. Sierra was born. We did surgery on Tracy's back to remove the cancer. Some data about malignant melanoma from fifteen years ago. And this is a general, a general diagnosis of data. People typically die within the first five years. If they don't die in the first five years, they most certainly die in the second five years. The first five years, Tracy was at the doctor every other month. The second five years, she was at the doctor every three months, and then every six months after that. Um, at the 10-year mark, they say she's cancer-free. They don't use that term anymore. And the liver function checks are part of her annual physical. Our family prayer during this time was that the Lord would make our family a city on a hill. Here we are, 15 years later. Now we're into this life with over half a dozen kids. We have plans set in motion. We can sense that people are observing us. Our additional family prayer is, Lord, bring us closer to you no matter what that takes. Last summer, Tracy starts having one or two headaches. Per week, not a big deal. She'd had some headaches when she was pregnant with the twins. Again, it wasn't a big deal. As the summer goes on and into the fall, the headaches increase in frequency and in intensity. She's now having migraines, and they are incapacitating. We suspect her eyes. We suspect her maybe her age, her hormones. Um, she gets glasses. The migraines continue. The prescription is adjusted. The migraines continue. She's starting to lose weight at this point, weight that she didn't have to lose. I don't say anything to Tracy, but I'm becoming nervous about the situation. Maybe about mid-November, I started to get nervous, concerned about the headaches. Around Christmas time, we feel like we have exhausted all the usual suspects and set an appointment with the neurologist for early January. She presents with classic migraine and rebound headache symptoms. The neurologist puts Tracy on four meds to treat the headaches and migraines. At first, it doesn't seem to be working. After two weeks, the meds seem to be helping slightly. My anxiety is continuing to build, and I finally share it with Tracy. She says, stop worrying so much. Time for the follow-up with the neurologist in early February. All I can think about is getting an MRI. The headaches have diminished, but were replaced by dizziness, also an incapacitating level. During the follow-up appointment, the neurologist wants to increase her meds and hit, hit it for another month. He says, if this doesn't work, I'll set you up for a psych consult. There's a side story there. I'll, I'll leave it alone. A lesser, a lesser man would have choked him. Tracy respectfully disagrees with the increased meds. He says he will order an MRI. Yes, he got the MRI. The next day, Wednesday, she has an MRI of her brain. The MRI tech says, if there's anything wrong, the 
back to a quiet mom. The next day we're at Emma Barnard's funeral. And then we're at school conferences in the evening. Neither of us checks the messages. Friday about noon, Tracy calls me at work. She says, the neurologist called and left a message yesterday wanting me to come in first thing today. Tracy was leaving for Camp Victory with the kids and would be out of cell service for most of the day. The doctor would be calling me to discuss the MRI. My anxiety level is even higher. I speak with the neurologist at 410 on Friday the 13th of February. He says the two spots on Tracy's brain should not be there. And this is very serious. He goes on to say he thinks it could be the melanoma returning and settling into her brain. I call Tracy on the landline at Camp Victory to tell her the news. She says, doesn't surprise me. We are staring at this information all day Saturday and Sunday. My anxiety is doubling. Monday was a day spent on the phone with the old oncologist, the new oncologist, record keeping, setting up tests, and so on. Tuesday, Tracy has a PET scan to determine if there are any more spots besides the brain. My anxiety has reached an all-time high. I haven't eaten or slept for 48 hours. Wednesday, the pinnacle day of fear. We meet the new oncologist. She gives us the news, confirming the spots on her brain. She also says they have these three lymph nodes that are lighting up on the PET scan. She also suspects the melanoma returning. Sometime during our visit with the oncologist, the Lord was moving in me. I was reflecting on the past, present, and the future. I was examining myself spiritually. I wasn't myself, and I knew. I prayed, Father, forgive me for straying from your ways. Throughout the rest of that day and evening, I would continue to lose fear and anxiety. It would be replaced with a peaceful love. Love that had been injured through me. Even though painful, it was calm and regenerative. I had been realigned with God's will and ways. We still had not heard the worst of the results yet. By now, our audience had grown substantially. Our platform was become an obvious choice. We were embracing the full reward brought before us. also know that when aligned with him, we will not have anxiety or fear. We will use our platform to serve him the best that we can. More testing and biopsies confirmed that the malignant melanoma is there. It's stage four. And the data, the un- the unreleased Published data says she'll have two to three years to live. A friend of ours said, quote verbatim, quote verbatim, please do. Our goal was 10 years. We love each of you because he first loved us. May the Lord's will be done. May his kingdom come. Thank you for listening.
I see in what he says today is that the, he sees a platform and that he's putting his full trust in God as true. Like when I, when I, when I talk to Jay, I just, I just I see it. And I wanted the church to see that too. That they are trusting in God in this, in this uncertain time. And putting Christ's kingdom first and saying that God's got this. And I love one thing that Jay said this week was, they want, you want as many people to watch this, watch this as possible. Because um, you trust God with it, with this story. And you, and you see this as your platform. In either case. Yeah, in either case, you want people to see it. Right, right. And I just, that heart is that heart that seeks after his kingdom and his righteousness. I think that's what, what Christ is calling us to. So let's, let's pray for a moment, pray for the, the Morrison family. Do come on Thursday if you would. Um, and, and join us for some extended time of prayer. Let the worship team and the ushers uh, come forward now. to trust you, to put our trust in you, and you call us directly in the Sermon of the Mount to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And God, I, I pray, Lord, that you would help us all to do that. Lord, if, if Jason can do that, if Tracy can do that, I can do that. God, we lift up Tracy to you, Lord. We pray that your hand would be on her, Lord. That you would free her of this, uh, this threat, Lord. We ask for those 10 years as well. We pray for uh, just a tremendous effectiveness in the treatments. We pray you give strength to Jason, Tracy, and the family. And Lord, show us as a church how to support them. And God, we do pray that your will be done, God. We know your will is more beautiful, more life giving better than any plans we could think of, Lord. We pray that your will will be done. And God, help us all to not have anxiety or worry about the things that don't matter. And to transfer that anxiety and worry over to trust in you and to aligning ourselves with you and your values and your purpose. Lord, I pray for those today who need to do that, that they would not leave here without committing to laying aside the things they need to lay aside lay aside the stuff that they are worried over they shouldn't be worried over, and to put their trust in you. Lord, we, we throw ourselves in you now, God. We pray that your, your will be done, that you would go with us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.